Well, good evening, everyone. Let's hear. And to all of you on Zoom, greeting to everyone on Zoom as well. I know there's a good number of people joining us on Zoom, so it's great that you are where you are. And the great thing with Zoom is that if next Tuesday night or the Tuesday night after that, we have freezing rain or something like that, we don't have to drive from our home to come here. I can jump on in Zoom, but as long as I can be here physically, I'm going to try to be here. First Peter chapter 4. If you could turn to First Peter chapter 4. I'm thinking you want me to end around 8. Is that around there? Okay, around 8 o'clock. All right. First Peter chapter 4 and verses 12 to 19. That's the portion I think that we're covering this evening. So we'll just jump right in there. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And let's just ask for the Lord's blessing on his word again. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would speak through your word to each of us, Father, to uh, whatever need we have this evening, God, uh, to be encouraged, to be challenged, your spirit bringing your word, your truth into our hearts and lives in the way that it would make some difference in us for your glory and for your honor. That's what we ask for. And we just commit this time now into your hands and your word into your hands in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so I'm going to be honest that I don't, I don't like suffering. I don't like to suffer. I don't know that any of us, like, like if we're really honest, if I were to say to you, how many of you really like suffering, would, would raise your hand and say, I really like suffering. It's awesome. I can hardly wait to suffer. I think, I think honestly, most of us, if not all of us, would say, I would rather be comfortable. I would rather uh, have ease. Um, I would rather not have stress in my life than have stress and suffering and, and difficulties to deal with in our lives. And I, th and I think that's just natural. That's human. You know, we, 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 we tend to be uh, self-focused. And if anything is taking away from our personal comfort, we really struggle with that. I'm sure that one of the things that would have been emphasized in the series as you've been going through First Peter is the theme of suffering that comes up in this letter, suffering and hope. What is interesting is that what, every time you've got the mention of the suffering, uh, these believers were suffering because of their faith. They were literally scattered because of their faith. Going back to the beginning when you started the study, chapter 1 and verse 1, they were scattered because of their faith. So they were going through a lot. But every time you have the suffering brought in view in the letter, you have the hope coming right alongside of it. There's the suffering and there's the hope. There's the suffering and there's the hope. 
There's a suffering, there's a hope. That's in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, chapter 2, verse 12, verse 20, verse 21, chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. And here in chapter 4, as we get into the suffering as well, that theme that just keeps coming up, but every time it's linked with hope. You're going to suffer in this life. At times you're going to suffer because of your faith in Christ, but it's always tied to the hope that we have in Christ all through this letter. Again, again, think of the reality of these people literally being driven out of their homes, having to flee, having in some cases their, their property, their goods confiscated because they were followers of Jesus Christ. Many of them were paying a high price because they named his name. You and I do not face that level of persecution in the culture that we are living in. It doesn't mean that we don't face any persecution, but not yet. Maybe someday, we don't know, but not yet to that level. So that's where these people are at, as Paul, or pardon me, as Peter writes to them. So there's two main things I want us to consider this evening, just going through this passage. I'm not necessarily going to go verse by verse, but I'm going to kind of follow that but I'm going to kind of take themes and we will refer to the different verses as we go through. So here's the first one. Suffering is to be expected. That's the first one. Suffering is to be expected. And the second one, suffering has purpose. Suffering has purpose. So let's deal with the first one. Suffering is to be expected. That's right off the hop in verse 12, where Peter says, he says, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Do not think it strange. In other words, what did you expect when you became followers of Jesus Christ? Uh, did you expect that there wouldn't be any opposition, that it would be easy? And, and, and the idea here that, that the suffering that they were facing was not something that was abnormal. Um, and, and it wasn't something that in their mind they should think, well, why in the world should we be going through this when we're trying to faithfully live for Jesus Christ? So just quickly because what why why is suffering something that should be expected for them and, and then bringing it into our own lives as well first of all this because we follow jesus that in itself means that at times we're going to suffer opposition simply because we identify ourselves with him we name his name verse 14 mentions that they were reproached if you are reproached for the name of christ simply because you take the name of christ that you are a follower of christ who was let's remember rejected by this world crucified on a cross became a laughing stock to many is still in some circles a laughing stock to the world or, or at the very least disrespected or or, or in some circles disbelieved in that he, that he was God or that he was the son of God. And so the rejection of Christ still follows those who name the name of Christ and who identify themselves with Jesus Christ. If the son of God was rejected and nailed to a cross, why should we think as followers of Christ that we would be exempted from any kind of opposition or any kind of suffering when we take his name and we follow him. And it doesn't mean that everyone we encounter is going to hate us because we're a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, there may be people that will respect us, that will respect our testimony. And in evangelism, we have inroads and we see people come to Christ, praise God, and the spirit of God is still working. So it's not that everyone thinks that way, but generally we understand that we live in a world that has rejected Christ and nailed him to a cross. And so if we follow him, that stigma, if you will, it, that 
tie, that identification is going to follow us. So because we follow Jesus, also because of our obedience. Suffering is to be expected because of our obedience. It's interesting when you go back to verse 4 of chapter 4, he says in regard to these, and he's talking here about, uh, you know, the, the way that you used to live. In verse 3, lewdness, lust, drunkenness, etc., drinking parties. You come to verse 4. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. In other words, sometimes because of our moral obedience, because of the standard that we have morally, and boy, could we ever get into that issue tonight, right? And where those lines can be drawn. And we're, I'm not going to get too specific. I think we all know where that can, where that can lead to. Simply because we say, no, we don't agree with that. We don't believe that is right. There are times that we're going to face opposition or persecution or rejection, some element of suffering because of our obedience morally. Sometimes it's going to be because of our beliefs, that we actually believe that there is something called truth and that there is a right and a wrong, and that that is according to God's word, the Bible, that there is, we believe, one way to heaven exclusively through Jesus Christ. These are things we understand that in the culture that we're living in is becoming increasingly unpopular. So we face the pressure. Some of you live at it in your workplace or where you are very intensely. Some of us maybe not so much because of where we are situated. But some of you are facing this continually, this pressure to conform or to compromise your beliefs that are according to the Bible to fit the culture that we're living in. And so sometimes because of our obedience, we're going to face rejection. We're going to face opposition. There's going to be a stigma against us. And I think the challenge in that when we face that kind of opposition is not to fight back. I don't think that's ever the way for the follower of Jesus Christ. But to stand on what we believe, but to stand in love as much as we can towards those who even oppose us and who are against us. And we have no greater example of that than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the way that he dealt with people that opposed him and were against him, and even though he stood on truth and he was adamant about the things that he stood for, there was still grace and there was still love in his heart and in his attitude towards them in the hope that they might become believers in him for us, that they would become believers in Christ. So suffering is to be expected because we follow Jesus, because of our obedience, and then finally, because of God's purpose. God allows suffering in our lives. We don't get saved, and then all of a sudden there's like this, 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 you know, superhero halo that goes around us, and nothing bad will ever happen in our life. Well, now I'm saved. Nothing bad's going to happen to me, right? Like everything just bounces off of me. I never get sick. I, I, I never have any financial problems. I never have any stresses. I never have any worries. Everything is perfect now because I belong to Christ. We, we know that's not true, right? We are perfect in terms of our position before God in Jesus Christ righteously speaking, his righteousness on us, and we have the expectation of heaven, praise God, and that's the hope that we have. But we are still human beings living in a broken, fallen world. And so we still go through suffering, and God allows us to go through suffering, but it is always with purpose, his purpose. That's the second main general point that I want to bring out of this passage here, the suffering has purpose. I want us to consider four purposes that we see in this passage, and there's maybe more than four, but there's four that I could find in going through this passage. Here's the first one, suffering is purpose. Number one, it confirms the genuineness 
of our faith. He confirms the genuineness of our faith. Look at verse 12 again. What, what does Peter say? He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you or literally to test you or to prove you as though some strange thing happened to you. This is not just random stuff coming into our life. It, it is not as if God is up there and is like, has no idea what is coming. He knows everything that comes into the life of his children, every follower of God. And do you not think God could easily deflect any kind of opposition or any kind of difficulty or put a hedge around us like he did with Job. The enemy wanted to go so far, and God says, you're only going this far because I'm putting a hedge around him. God is holding the line so that if the suffering comes into our life, ultimately we need to know that God is allowing that. And if he's allowing it, there's a reason he's allowing it. And one of the reasons may be to confirm the genuineness of our faith, the fiery trial. If you've looked up the meaning of that word in the original language, you will know, and maybe you've got a study Bible that has it in the margin somewhere, that this word literally is a word used for the smelting of metals to purify them. That goes back, obviously, to chapter 1 and verse 7. So way back when you started the study, someone would have spoke on this. I don't know who it was. But going back to chapter 1, verse 7, notice what it says, that the genuineness, here it is, the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Now that word tested there in chapter one, verse seven is not exactly the same word. It's not exactly the same, but it comes out of the same root, okay? So there is a connection from that word that you find in chapter one, verse seven, the tested by fire, the purifying of the gold, we all get that. I'm sure whoever spoke on that explained that. And I think we all, even without having that explained, we know that to purify gold, you have to refine it. That requires fire and it requires heat. And in doing that, the purifying process goes on and there's a skimming of the dross out and all the bad stuff. We understand that. that that's, that's, a, that's a metaphor that I think we all get. It is reaffirmed here in chapter 4 and verse 12 in the fiery trial. In other words, God is allowing our faith to be tested, be put to the fire to test our faith, to test our obedience, to test our integrity, our character, whether it is real or not. Are we the real deal or are we not? If life is easy and it's good all of the time and we float along and all of us can relate with times maybe where life tend to be relatively easy, and then some difficulty comes into our life, whatever that might be, is it not in the times of difficulty that we, the rubber really hits the road, right? It's easy to praise God. It's easy to honor him. It's easy to say that you love him when things are good. When things are bad, that's not so easy. And it's in those moments that the reality of our faith and our obedience and our integrity are tested, put to the test, like Job, put to the test, where are you really at in terms of your relationship with me, your commitment to me? What is the reality of your faith? And so God allows that to come into our lives. It would be different for each of us, the, maybe the trials that we go through, the, the, the fiery trial. For these people, as I said earlier, some of them have been driven from their homes. They have lost their homes. They may have been driven from their family. Some of them have, have lost the things that they possess. They have paid a high price to be followers of Christ. You talk about the fiery trial. If, if you were not real, 
in your commitment to Christ in that time, facing that persecution, you wouldn't follow him. You would walk away. And you would say, enough of this. Like, uh, enough, and I'm trying to serve God, and this is going wrong, and that's, I want nothing to do with it. And, and we see that even in our time, right? Professing believers that face adversity, and when the heat is on and the pressure is on, some walk away. Others endure through the fire, the proving of the faith, the integrity of the faith, the reality of it, individually in our lives, but also corporately. I want to drop down to verse 17 here. I know I'm not following exactly the direction here, but drop down to verse 17. And, and notice what it says. It says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Let's, let's take up this verse here and break it down. I, I think this is here, in a sense, a, a reference to a corporate testing of faith. I think that's what's going on in verse 17. This reference to the house of God, some have suggested that it might be referring to the temple in Jerusalem, and that the timing of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem in AD 70 is linked to what Peter's saying here, because it would have been right around that time, you know, this letter was probably written around 65, 64 AD, and Peter knew about the destruction of the temple, Matthew 24, 2 and 3, and that's what he's talking about. I don't think so, right? I think most Bible teachers would agree or think that where he's talking about the house of God, here he's talking about the church, the corporate body of believers, Kind of the church of a, as a whole, as it was in that day, something that, let's understand, had grown rapidly. Like the church had exploded in numbers. It had grown rapidly. Within that rapid growth, there would have been a lot of people being brought in or coming in because, let's face it, this was, in some ways, a popular movement initially, right? And so there would have been a lot of people that maybe would have come in, with wrong motives, maybe they really weren't genuine believers at all, but this all looks good, sounds good, these Christians are nice, the whole deal, they're drawn in. But there would, in a sense, have been within that corporate body, impurities, uh, people in there, things in there that were not really, didn't really belong to God. And so there's going to be this, this judgment, and here the idea of judgment is not necessarily the judgment against sin specifically, but it is more of a testing. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, a testing, a trial, a purifying, a refining of the house of God, the church of Jesus Christ during that time. I think probably what Peter is referring to is the first great persecution that was about to explode against the church. It was happening already. Like I said, many of these Christians had already been dispersed, but it was going to spread. It had begun at Jerusalem, the persecution. It had pushed these believers out. But there is a an emperor who maybe is not on the throne yet. Probably he is from looking at the timeline of when Nero came to uh, the throne in Rome. Probably he is reigning at this time. And he will unleash or he will instigate under his authority one of the, the, well, the first great persecution against the Church of Jesus Christ. There would be many, if you look at the history of Rome and the Roman empires and the persecutions that broke out against the church. There's always some level of persecution, but then there are these moments, these times, these intervals of intense persecution. They were on the cusp of one of those right now. And I think it's that that Peter is referring to when he says, for the time has come 
for judgment to begin at the house of God. There's going to be a refining of the church. There's going to be a persecution that is going to break out that is going to test the church and those within it to their reality, to the reality of their faith. Only the true believers would continue, obviously, to faithfully live for God through that. I think you all know what is going to happen to Peter during that great persecution and what is going to happen to Paul during that great persecution. Both of them are going to die. Peter makes reference to it in 2 Peter. Paul makes reference to it in 2 Timothy, that there's an expectation. They know they're going to die. How specifically did they know? We don't know for sure. You know, what did the Lord reveal to them? But ultimately, they would die during that persecution. You talk about a time of severe testing for the church, that these great men of God, these great apostles of Christ would die. You have to think that that would just suck the wind out of the Christians, right? You talk about something so discouraging, there, there would be a sense within the church, maybe, right? How can we continue? How is this going to keep going? Now we've got the emperor himself doing things, and you can read history, and some of it maybe is true, and some of it's manipulated, whatever. We know there was this great persecution. And at that point, you have to think that many of the believers were, would have been struggling with what was going on. Yet in spite of that, in spite of that, the church flourished. And it grew, and it continued, and it kept moving forward. And we could go, I'm going to be careful, we're going to get bogged down in history here. But it confirmed the genuineness of the faith, faith of these believers that in the time of most severe testing, where many of them are dying because of their faith, they're testifying for Christ. And they're standing and paying some of them with their lives. And that testimony, their blood, it, it literally was the, the thing that sowed the seed for many in the Roman Empire to become believers in Jesus Christ, because they looked at these people and thought, what did they have? That they would continue to serve Christ when they're going through this. So, so that power of that now, i got to keep going here. Secondly, um, the purpose of suffering, it conforms us more to Christ's likeness. Look at verse 13, conforms us more to Christ's likeness, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, and when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Partake of Christ's sufferings, literally the sharing of the sufferings of Christ. There was a fellowship of his suffering. Paul talks about that in Philippians 3.10, doesn't he? It's something that he wants in his life. So if there was someone, you know, whether Paul loved suffering, whether we would say that or not, but he certainly wanted it in his life, not because he was, uh, you know, hated himself or something, because he wanted to be like Christ. And he knew the only way he could be really be like Christ was to suffer with him. And it was a sharing of his suffering. And because these people were suffering and they were sharing in Christ's sufferings, there's a sense in which that was going to make them. When you share in someone's sufferings, you appreciate them more, you get to know them more. There's a sense in which you become more like them. And as we share in Christ's sufferings, whatever form that might take, it is part of the process that God uses to conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. It makes us more holy, doesn't it, when we suffer? Are we less likely to sin when we're suffering? I would suggest to you that probably that's the case. It makes us more humble when we suffer, right? There's just not much room for pride or arrogance, is there, when we're suffering and going through trial. It makes us more loving. It makes us more sensitive. 
All of these things, it makes us more like Jesus Christ when we go through suffering. And, and so here, this thought, rejoice, he says, Peter says, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. There is indirect suffering that we can relate with in terms of the suffering of Christ. What I mean by that is we may go through some kind of physical pain in our life, some affliction that comes into our life, whether it's disease or something, whatever it might be. Jesus suffered pain. I can relate with him in that way because I'm feeling pain. It could be rejection we go through. It could be loneliness we go through. It could be grief we go through, sorrow of some sort. Whatever sort of thing we go through in our life from day to day, it, we can relate when it's suffering. We can relate. Jesus knows what it's like to go through things like this. He can understand. And in that way, that can be something that we, we see as something that is going to make us more like Jesus Christ. That's indirect. But then there's the direct suffering. And I think that's more what, what Peter is aiming at here when he talks about Christ's sufferings. In other words, the suffering we go through simply because we're followers of Jesus Christ, because we are walking in obedience to him, because we name the name of Christ or for the name of Christ, as he puts it, we are suffering, that direct suffering that we go through because of our faith, whatever form that might take, we, we might not, you know, have our home burned and have our, our property confiscated, but you may face opposition in your workplace. You may face rejection in your school. You, you may face reproach and ridicule and insult because of a stand that you take because you know this is obedience to God. That is a direct suffering because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This is not, and, and, and when we go through that, we're, we're becoming more like him. And, and to see that then as being something he went through, and I'm going through it, and in that sense, I'm more like Christ. Now, just look at verse 15. This is so important. Verse 15, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. In other words, this is not, that's not suffering for Christ's sake, Okay. In other words, when we, when we behave foolishly or because of some folly in our life or something that we've done and that we've brought on ourselves, and then somehow we think that, well, everyone should feel sorry for me or I'm more like Christ or whatever. No, pardon me. I keep saying Paul. Peter is basically saying here, that's not what I'm talking about. So, so if you are making bad decisions in your life and you're suffering because of that, that is a whole other issue. But when you are going through trial that is beyond your control that God is allowing in your life, or when you are facing persecution or opposition because of your faith in Christ, you are suffering, you are sharing in that sense in Christ's sufferings, and it conforms us more to Christ's likeness. Number three, it compels us, suffering compels us to be more eternally focused. It's one other purpose of suffering. It compels us to be more eternally focused. This is not a death wish we're talking about, right? It's not like, God, I just want to die and I want to go to heaven. If God has placed us in this world and he's given us life and he gives you breath and every morning you go up, that's another day for you to live for him and live that day for him and thank God for each day that he gives you. And so we're not talking about a death wish, but sometimes we may have a home wish, right? I, I, I thank God for every day that I have, and I want to give that day to him and live for him, but I'm looking forward to the day when I'm home with him. You know, that's okay to live that way, to live with that eternal perspective. And doesn't suffering in this life lift our eyes to heaven like nothing else and to home like nothing else, to the day when I'm going to be with him? And all this 
sorrow and all this brokenness and all this pain and all this, maybe it's persecution, whatever it is that you're facing in this world and the futility sometimes, right, of this world is going to be swept away in the eternal presence of God. We need to live for that. We need to live in this world, rooted here, serving faithfully, serving joyfully, but living with the expectation that someday we're going to be with him because that's what we're destined for. And you find that woven, as I said, all through these passages in First Peter where there's suffering and then there's hope, there's hope, there's hope. It's the focus to what is ahead, verse 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Peter's saying there's a day coming. Whatever sorrow you go through in this life, whatever suffering you face in this life, it will be swept away in the joy of his presence. Live with that focus. Verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. On your part, he is glorified. Again, there's that expectation, the spirit of glory. There is something you're looking forward to. Think of what Jesus said in, 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 in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Let me read it for you. He says, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love verse 19, the end of this passage here, verse 19, he says, therefore, it's like he comes to the end of his thought about suffering and our perspective on it, he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God, I love this, commit their souls to him, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Whatever I'm going to opposition, I'm going to face. Whatever I'm going to suffer, suffering in this world, whether it's an indirect suffering of just living in a broken world, or whether it's a direct suffering because of my obedience to Christ or, or or my identity with Him, I commit my soul to Him. There's a beautiful word here that the meaning of this word, and again, if you have a study Bible or maybe even a translation, I'm not sure if there's a translation that puts it this way, but the word "commit" there means to place, as to place a deposit. That's the meaning a deposit for safekeeping. In other words, I'm placing my soul, my eternal destiny in the hands of God. I am depositing it there for safekeeping. I'm giving him my life. It's his. I surrender it to him. And I deposit it with him. And can I say, brothers and sisters, there can't be a better, safer, more secure place to deposit something, right, than into the hands of God. No bank, no financial institution, no, you know, money fund or whatever it is that you're going to put your money in is going to pay a better return than when you take your life and you entrust it to Jesus Christ in spite of whatever circumstance I'm going through. So it compels us, suffering compels us to be more eternally focused. The fourth purpose that I see, and I'm going to end with this, the fourth purpose of suffering in our lives is that it creates opportunity to glorify God. Some of the greatest stories of the Bible, have you noticed, are, and the most inspirational, the most challenging, and the ones that calls to faith more than any others are ones that involve God's people suffering. Have you noticed that? You know, David in his persecution at the hand of Saul. 
And what comes out of that suffering, incredible psalms and the experience of David and what he goes through and relates with, think of the prophets and their suffering, right? Think of Daniel thrown in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. They were suffering persecution and opposition. And we have these great things that come out of it, these great stories, events where God delivers them and God is glorified. And it speaks to us even today. And ultimately, we have a Savior who went through the most incredible and deepest suffering that any person has ever experienced. And what comes out of that is salvation. Nothing less, right, than the salvation of humanity, all part of God's plan. And so we, we have a verse like verse 14 where he says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part... He is glorified. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. There is an opportunity when we face suffering to glorify him. The idea of glorifying, literally, we can look at it this way. It's hard to define glory. If you've ever tried to look up a definition of it in the, in the Greek, you'll find it's a difficult thing to define even in the Hebrew. But it has this idea to, of it to make something very apparent, right? And, and, and the idea sometimes we, we would put the word magnify in here. To glorify someone is to magnify them. If I can put it this way, it is to put the focus on them so that, so that when we go through suffering and opposition for the sake of Christ, for that moment, people are looking at us, but they're looking at him. They're looking at him through us. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. On their part, end of verse 14, he is blasphemed. People may ridicule you because of your faith in Christ, your obedience to God, his truth, whatever. On their part, he's blaspheming. This is crazy. How can you believe this? You're out of your mind. I'd like to get rid of you or whatever. You know, that, and I'm not, you know, whatever. We may face that. That's what these people were facing. But on their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he's glorified. The glory is going to God. And the focus is going on God and on Jesus Christ. We are honoring him when we go through that. I'm going to end quickly, Acts 5. Just go to Acts 5. In verse 40, I'm going to end here, Acts 5 and verse 40. You remember the story, the, the apostles and, and, and their faithfulness to God in, in, in the early church, and they're facing the opposition. And I'm just going to jump in for time's sake, verse 40. <clears throat> so they, they, they face this opposition. They go before the Sanhedrin. And in verse 40, it says they agreed with him. That was as they agreed with Gamaliel as to how they're going to handle these apostles, these these Jesus freaks, if I could use that term, or these followers of Jesus, what are we going to do with them? And, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, yay, right? Oh, yeah, I just want to get up tomorrow morning and get literally physically beaten because of my faith. How many of us think that? They had beaten them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, and they were upset, and they were depressed, and they were just, why am I following Jesus? Doesn't say that, does it? It says they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Is that not bringing glory to him? <laughs> and does the suffering not then create the opportunity to glorify God? Another example of it here. And then I love this, verse 42, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not ever name the name of Jesus again. <laughs> that doesn't say that. It says they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus the Christ. 
May the Lord encourage us in these things. There is a purpose in suffering. It confirms the genuineness of our faith. It conforms us more to Christ's likeness. It compels us to be more eternally focused. It creates opportunity to glorify God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take your word, make it real to us, God. Make it real to us in some way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.